If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The story of African and Caribbean people in Britain goes back to before the Roman Empire. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Hakim Adi, a professor of the history of Africa and the African diaspora, about this millennia-long history and what we can learn from this often overlooked aspect of our nation's story. So your new book, Hakeem, gives a history of African and Caribbean people in Britain, dating back to pre-Roman times and finishing with the modern day. Why did you decide to study such an exceptionally long period? It, I mean, I think it's, the aim is obviously to present something to readers that is, is going to be useful. And so then you do need to present the entire history. And the the aim was, I think I say in the preface to the book, that the aim was to present the the latest research. Obviously, the the key book in the recent period is Peter Fryer's book, Staying Power, which was published nearly 40 years ago. And so in those 40 years lots of work has been done, all kinds of research and so on, um, which, which hasn't been presented in its entirety. So that was, the, that was my aim, to, to try and sum up that research and to try and build on what others had done and also to give recognition to what others have done because sometimes people write histories and it, it appears almost that they've discovered everything. And that's never the case. Lots of other people have discovered things and presented things and done research and written books and articles. So then you want to try and present all of it with the aim that, you know, people will be in, be able to, to dip into it um, and use it as a reference work. And because of the kind of circumstances in which we live, the society in which we live in, all of this history is related. You know, technically speaking, you could say Cheddar Man isn't part of this history in the sense that, talking about the title of the book, he came neither from Africa or from the Caribbean, at least not directly. 
but he kind of fits into the history because he gives us a new way of looking at how black people are perceived and the relationship, if you like, between Britishness and, and blackness. And just to clarify for our listeners, Cheddar Man is a skeleton, correct? Cheddar Man is unfortunately only a skeleton because he lived about 10,000 years ago, so there's not much of him left, poor chap. Um, but what's important about Cheddar Man is that he's one of the, the earliest Britons that we know of, that we have physical evidence of. And so when he was discovered o- over a century ago, it was an important find. But the reconstruction of him, the representation of him, was always of a, you know, kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed kind of person. But the latest DNA evidence presents a very different reconstruction picture of him as a very dark-skinned person, but also with blue eyes, rather interestingly. But anyway, the the whole point about this is that Britons 10,000 years ago, and indeed Europeans 10,000 years ago, would all have looked like Cheddar Man looked, or how we know he would have looked. So that sort of changes our whole perspective on what Britishness is, um, what Europeanness is. It's important for then understanding or for then looking at this whole history of Africans or African and Caribbean people in Britain, which kind of hitherto has been largely ignored or hidden or swept under the carpet. Um, so before we start tracing this history properly, I wanted to ask you about language, because you mentioned earlier that our notion of what Britishness and Europeanness is, is challenged by what you uh, present in this book. So why is it that you've chosen to use the phrase African and Caribbean people rather than something like, say, Black Britons? Well, the simple answer is because that's the the kind of best definition of the people that the book is about. You know, for, for many centuries, people came to Britain from the African continent. So if we go back to, you know, Roman times and we talk about the so-called African emperor, Septimius Severus, or those who came with him, they came from Africa. So they were Africans. Or people who came in the 18th century, like Equiano, they, were, they came from the African continent, they were Africans. So from much of the period of the book, the, the answer is very clear. There are people who came from Africa, they're, they're African. And, of course, in the more recent period, people also come from the Caribbean. And those who've come from the Caribbean, um, not everybody is necessarily of African, directly of African heritage, although the vast majority of people are. So we use the term... Caribbean to refer to all those people who came from the Caribbean um, and their descendants, their children, their grandchildren, and so on. So it's a very inclusive definition or inclusive use of the term. And I think that's right. I think that people should be presented with their, if you like, their geographical heritage, their cultural heritage, their linguistic heritage, not simply as a you know, a colour, let's say. So that's the main reason. The the other reason is that the term term that's often used is, you know, black British history and so on, which is a little bit of an unfortunate term in the same way that white British history would be an unfortunate term. And so I tried to steer away from that. Obviously, lots of 
you know, we discussed lots of possible titles, how we should present this history. But that, we decided eventually that was the best way of doing it. I think the other thing is that people sometimes forget when we're looking at this history that it has an African component, especially recent history. And I don't want to mention a particular boat that arrived at a particular time, but there's this idea that everything is kind of Caribbean. If we look at the, what we could call the black population in Britain at this particular moment in time, the majority of that population come directly, or their parents or grandparents come from the African continent. That is the majority black population in Britain. Um, They have direct connection with the African continent. That's sometimes forgotten about, and we people think of things in a slightly different way. And it was also to emphasise that fact, as well as the fact that for most of the, the period the book covers, that the significance of that connection with the African continent that the title was chosen. So let's delve into the history properly then and go back to the ancient period. And you mentioned the Emperor Septimius Severus. Is he the earliest African that we can trace as being in Britain? He's one of the earliest that we have as a named individual. There are several African Romans of that period. There are, for example, there's... Uh, a man called Quintus Lollicus Urbicus, who was a Roman governor of Britain who originated from Algeria. There was a woman whose name we don't really know, but we call her Ivory Bangle Lady because she was buried with an ivory bangle in the city of York and so on. There is uh, a man called Morris whose tomb is in the north of England from roughly the same kind of period, the third century. So there are few named individuals, and there were numerous Africans or African Romans who were here, including many of the soldiers who came with Septimius Severus and others. So there are, as I say, quite a few Africans from that period, and as well as most of whom we, we don't, know their names. We don't know very much about them. And so Septimius Severus is is perhaps the most notable, a man almost certainly of Berber origins from what is today Libya, connected with the city of Leptus Magnus, which is still visible, can still be visited in Libya. It's quite possible, in fact, it's almost certain there were Africans here before that period. It's just that we don't know very much about them, we don't have names for them, we don't know exactly the connection that existed between the British Isles and probably North Africa in that period. So he's the most well-known, named, that we, we know of from that very early period. And do we have a sense of what their reception was like in the British Isles? <laughs> Those who came with the invading Roman army um, were probably not sort of welcome with open arms. So it's difficult to say exactly what reception they, w- they would have had. But our knowledge tends to be concerned, not our knowledge, but our, uh, our interest is, is kind of mainly concerned with what was their 
position, status, and so on in society. Because it, it used to be that there used to be the kind of idea that well, yeah, there might have been a few Africans, but they were, you know, probably enslaved. That's the only way in which they could possibly have appeared, or um, one could possibly think of Africans in that period. But of course, all the evidence suggests exactly the opposite that there are emperors, there are governors, there are wealthy women, there are, you know, people in a variety of a variety of statuses and, and occupations. Um, but as to exactly what the ancient inhabitants um, thought of this, these invaders who spoke a different language and looked different and so on, I don't know the answer to that question. I would be very impressed if you did, if you'd found a little diary hidden away somewhere. Um, but I was really intrigued by what you said about how um, there's this idea that people must have been enslaved, because this is something that continues in your book. You say in the Tudor and Stuart period, it's misleading to connect the presence of African people in Britain with human trafficking. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I think that there, there is still this kind of hangover um, which, which is essentially a, a kind of Eurocentric perspective and, and tells us more about those who maintain this view than it does about the history that they're commenting on, that, that everything has to be seen through the, the sort of prism or the spectacles of, of enslavement and human trafficking, and that's clearly not the case. Um, we have to remember that in the Tudor period, so that's, well, let's say in the period leading up to 1500, we have to think about the, the status of Africans in Europe as well as Africans in Africa. And remember that in the Tudor period, Britain had a particular relationship with Europe, but also a developing relationship with, with Africa, particularly with West Africa, but also with other parts of Africa. And that the English participation in the human trafficking of Africans was at in its infancy and didn't really take off before the you know 1560s or, or thereabouts. So most of the Africans who were in the country at this time, at the time of Elizabeth Tudor, probably came from Spain or Spain and possibly Portugal at a time of change and unrest in that part of the world. Many of them were skilled craftspeople, needle makers, silk weavers, divers of various kinds, or they may have accompanied, they may have been royal retainers, may have come with people like Catherine of Aragon, or they might have been, you know, some of them would have been household servants or just, you know, people doing a variety of occupations. So they, they didn't automatically come through the involvement of English human traffickers in enslaving people in the African continent. Some of them were almost certainly were the, the sons of African rulers who began to have a trading connection of various kinds with English merchants and so on. So everything we know about that period suggests that was the case. Of course, there may have been a few of them who came in a servile or enslaved status, but from what we know of the history of that period, it, it seems that Slavery was not an institution that was upheld by the legal system in the country. And there are examples of Africans maybe who had a servile status coming from elsewhere and being freed when they arrived in Britain and so on. And so I think that is the, the picture. 
and that sort of flies in the face of kind of previous views of the period. People often point to the various proclamations that Elizabeth Tudor is supposed to have made relating to there were too many Africans in the kingdom and so on. But I think the latest analysis of these proclamations or more properly draft proclamations suggests that, well, one thing we know is that they were not implemented. They, they What they tend to tell us is more about the fact that there were significant numbers of Africans in the country than they do about status of Africans or as an, they, they don't provide us with evidence and examples of racism and so on. The fact that they were not implemented actually tells us that the, the, the impossibility of implementing, in, in other words, that Africans were not of a status that they could just be rounded up and expelled from the, the kingdom and so on. So that's what the evidence suggests. Is it important for us to kind of look afresh at that? We also know that people, Africans who were here intermarried or had relationships with uh, people here, some were baptized, some were property owners, some were, there was a whole variety of occupations. So I think it's important to look at that period, if you like, in its historical context, as it were, and not prejudge it with strange ideas about what may have occurred in a later period. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Why does the world's leading human trafficker kidnapper of African men, women and children in the 18th century, seven years into the 19th century, suddenly decide, oh no, this is a terrible idea. And uh, it's completely wrong and we should abolish it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So coming on then to talk about that later period, when is it that the seeds are sown for our notions of modern racism? Well, I think that that certainly is occurring by probably the, the late 17th century. That is a century where we can say English or British, we include Scotland and elsewhere, human trafficking really takes off. And obviously... England's already acquired colonies in North America in the 17th century, also acquires colonies in the Caribbean, where it is necessary for a variety of reasons to find a supply of labour, which ultimately comes from, from Africa. And I think, generally speaking, people are familiar with the ways in which Africans were kidnapped and trafficked and the kind of conditions in which they were transported across the Atlantic and the way in which they were treated in the North American colonies or in the Caribbean colonies and so on. You know, these were essentially kind of money-making factories uh, in which 
you know, human labor, human lives were not, in a sense, we can say were not valued. Um, they weren't valued any more than an animal might be valued and so on. But there was also um, questions were being asked. Obviously, questions were asked or posed by Africans themselves who resisted, who rebelled, who ran away and so on in the colonies, as well as by others who began to question whether it was Christian and or legal to enslave other human beings and so on. And so we get a, a struggle emerges, I think, by, by the time Great Britain becomes Great Britain, so the beginning of the 18th century, 1707, that, that debate is already, already taken off. And I think it's in the course of that debate that these ideas about whether Africans are human or non-human or inferior to Europeans, it's in that context that these kind of debates uh, begin. And we, we can find examples of both. We can find examples of racism and we can find examples of anti-racism. Of course, as the, the struggle intensifies in the 18th century, then the, so the defenders of enslavement, defenders of human trafficking develop their ideas much further. And we find that, you know, some of the leading philosophers of the time, people like David Hume and John Locke and others, of course, who had their own connections with human trafficking and enslavement, we find them also the biggest defenders of slavery and the biggest defenders of racism. Um, and there, there were others. And of course, as a result of this, uh, and we, all, we also have to remember that human trafficking was, even from the time of Elizabeth Tudor, was a, a state activity. It wasn't just, you know, a few people sailing off and so on. This was state activity. State monopolies were established by the monarchs uh, from Elizabeth Tudor onwards and and. All of them were connected with, all the monarchs, royal family more generally, were connected with human trafficking and slavery and so on. Hence the name of companies like the Royal Adventurers in Africa, the Royal Africa Company and so on. So because these are, because human trafficking and so on are state activities, government activities, activities of the rich and powerful, they also have the means to, to present their views uh, or to present their racist views to the rest of the population and so on. And that obviously exists in the church because the church was also, Church of England was also connected with human trafficking and so on. So these are the kind of dominant ideas which are spread around by the state, by the government, by the church and by other institutions of that kind. At the same time, there are other people who contest those ideas, who say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian to me. And, you know, as Christians, we shouldn't enslave other human beings. And so there's a, a, a struggle, a contest. And, of course, by the time of the 18th century, we have the emergence already of the Enlightenment, so-called, in Europe, which is fashionable to criticise today. But if we actually look at it in context, the key thing about the Enlightenment was that it say almost encouraged criticism of everything, criticism of the status quo and so on, um, and particularly the established order. And so those that movement was also concerned about the rights of people, 
what today we'd call human rights. They tended to talk about the rights of man in that period. But so you often find those who were defending the rights of workers in England, for example, who are also defending the rights of Africans in England or Africans in Africa, because they then saw the question of rights as being indivisible. If you defend the rights of one, you must defend the rights of all and so on. So anyway, all this is to answer your question about racism. Um, it emerges with human trafficking and with obviously colonialism and so on, but it's always contested. And I think we have to remember that there is this struggle and contest going on. There are different views, just as there are different competing interests, different types of people in the world, some who are rich and powerful and the vast majority who are not. So you say in your book that the Abolition Act didn't really end Britain's involvement in the slave trade. When does it end? Well, that's a bit of a moot point. I think the the first thing we need to say is that why is there an Abolition Act? Why does the world's leading human trafficker, kidnapper of African men, women and children in the 18th century, seven years into the 19th century, suddenly decide, oh, no, this is a terrible idea. And no, it was completely wrong and we should abolish it and so on. But the short answer is, of course, it wasn't in the interests of the rich and powerful to necessarily end that involvement and uh, or end that involvement completely. And I think the, the key thing to remember is that this is a period of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution depended largely on or was fueled by the cotton industry, and cotton was produced by enslaved Africans, largely, particularly in uh, North America, but, but, um, but also elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, Britain was still connected with the enslavement of Africans. The, the other thing to bear in mind is that the important financial interests in Britain were not only connected with the slave states of, of America, of North America, of the US as it became, but also with human trafficking in Brazil, in Cuba, and in other places as well. And so that those connections continued, and particularly even when the actual trafficking of people gradually began to peter out throughout the 19th century, although we still see aspects of slavery in Africa throughout that century and even beyond. The, the financial interest that the white men of property had in this country still continued to be connected with human trafficking, with slavery, with slave-produced products and so on. So that's the short answer, let's say. So for the final part of our conversation, let's look at the modern period. Why is it, do you think, that there's a tendency for this history to just be reduced to the Windrush story? I think all my not so all my life, but certainly, you know, I've been involved with this history for, you know, about 35, maybe 40 years, something like that. And throughout that whole period, there has been a a view presented that everything started in 1948. That, that, okay, you know, yes, there is some some of this history, but that's when it began. That's when it becomes significant. That's when it becomes important. And, you know, we can analyse why that is the case, it may be because it's, you know, a fairly recent period. It may be because there are people still around who came during that period or whose parents came during that period. It may be that it's um, 
it's easier to accept and to recognize what people can kind of see in their eye, you know, see with their own eyes and, and so on. And I think I've spent most of that time arguing against that view and saying that's just not true. People have been here since Roman times and before. And we, we still go on saying that. And it's not just a question of, of numbers. It's much more a question of just presenting an accurate picture of history, not just accepting um, what is presented by the powers that be. You know, the arrival of this boat, it is, it's just a bit strange, to be honest. I think one, one reason is that there, there were people on that boat who became important citizens and then made a big deal about the boat. The fact is that, you know, the boat didn't just arrive in 1948 because it arrived before 1948. If you want to look at the boat, uh, it may be because the arrival of the boat in 1948 was filmed and we had, uh, you know, Lord Kitchener singing and a nice song and you can see it, you know, it's it was kind of covered by the press. That may be it. But, but if you actually look at the history, the history shows you something else. Firstly, that that wasn't the first time the Windrush appeared. You know, you have to also understand that the Windrush was essentially a troop carrier taking people back to the Caribbean. Then you have to look at the ships that came before in the post-war period. Why ignore those? Um, they also brought people from the Caribbean as well as some other countries. Then you have to look at exactly who was coming in that period because a lot of people came from Africa in that period who were completely, I wouldn't say hidden, a kind of eliminated from this history. So I think it's very problematic. Of course, you can talk about a Windrush generation if you wish to, but the, gener the Windrush arrived at a time when large-scale immigration wasn't really occurring. Uh, that didn't really occur until the 1950s. So even as a symbol for what occurred later, of what, what was occurring or what occurred later, it, it's not a very good symbol, in my view. Of course, it arrived. If people want to celebrate it arriving, that's fine. But I think to present it as a symbol of what happened later is a bit misleading and as, a, as an entry point for the history of African and Caribbean people in Britain is incredibly misleading. For my final question then, Hakeem, what entry point would you suggest for listeners who are keen to learn more about this history? What theme should they look at? Where should they start? Well, you have to start at the beginning. <laughs> good place to start. <laughs> a very good place to start, I would say. Uh, let, let's look at the beginning, let's look at the whole history, and then let's see where 1948 fits into this history. You know, we, we can start anywhere along this, this continuum of several thousand years. Again, it depends what is it that you want to, to say, what is it that you want to know, what is it that you want to understand. If you want to understand everything, then you start at the beginning and you look at the history and you look at, for example, Africa's relationship with, with the British Isles, or you might look at the British Isles' relationship with Africa, and you recognise that that goes on for centuries. And, and it changes, obviously, in the the period of Cheddar Man, it's different from how it is in the time of the Romans. And the time of the Romans is different from what it was in Tudor England, you know, where Elizabeth Tudor had diplomatic relations with Morocco and so on. It's, that's very different from how it was in the 18th century or in the 19th century or in the 
various parts of the 20th century. So the, the whole point about studying history is partly to understand the past, but also to understand the present and to, to understand what's going on in the world. And if we have this kind of truncated understanding of history or limited understanding of history, then in a way we have a very limited understanding of the world in which we live. So looking at history in its entirety, I think, is very, very important. That was Professor Hakim Adi. His new book, African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History, is out now, published by Penguin. You can also read a version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Music